This morning I'd like to pick back up on our studies on the, the Sermon on the Mount. Let me re-emphasize re a little bit of introductory things before I deal with the main thrust of the message in regard to what is said in one of the Beatitudes of Blessed or the Meek. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, Christian ethics. Christian ethics is basically finding out what is right and what is wrong and then as a Christian choosing that which is right. So the highest standard in the New Testament for what is right and wrong, I believe, is the teachings of Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7. Now, many other places in the epistles confirm what was said, but we chose this, this because he goes up onto a mountain and he sits down, and on that mountain he proceeds to speak what we have contained in three chapters of Matthew. And they are very deep and profound and difficult areas when you really stop and think about everything that he said. And because some of the things that he said are so difficult, there are a lot of Christians that don't believe that it's something that we should live. There are some theologians that say, no, they, he was speaking to the Jews and not us as Christians. And then there are others that come along and say, this is for life in the millennium, not now currently under life, this life under grace. But we addressed all those different questions that come up just simply by reading from some of the texts where at the end of it in Matthew 7, he says, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them not is a fool that he's building his house upon sand and when troubles and tribulation and problems come into their life then they're going to crumble and they're going to fall because they have been building their their life based upon the philosophy of the world but he says the man that hears these teachings man or woman and builds his life upon what I have said here is like a man that builds his house upon a rock. And no matter what problem comes that he says they will be able to overcome and persevere and endure and be blessed. So that's why I believe that it's for today. We wouldn't need it in the millennium. And he isn't talking to the Jews. The Jews don't have salvation because they've rejected their Savior. One day their eyes will be opened, but right now they are separated from Christ. They've rejected him, so they're not saved. They're very religious, but there are many religions in the world. And yet there's a promise to them and so forth that I won't get into. But let me reemphasize again, at least for a little while so we get this right. We're not suggesting that we have to live these things in order to be saved. Salvation is a gift of grace. It comes free. It is something to whereby we recognize that God loves us and sent his son to, to die for our sins and pay the penalty for our sins. And he calls upon us to repent and to save, receive Jesus as our Savior. But he also says that we're to receive him as our Lord. 
You can't have him as your savior and not take him as your Lord. He doesn't offer himself that way. Every place in the Bible, he's presented as the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as the Lord of our life, he's the master of our life. And he wants us to become yoked with him, and he wants to take control of our life. And in order for that to happen, that's what this sermon starts out as talking about, that we need to surrender our life to him and let him take over and not just join a church and call ourselves a Christian. That isn't where it's at. A lot of people are deceived in thinking that Christianity is just joining a church and saying, I believe in Jesus. But then they pick and choose at what the scriptures say. The right and wrong isn't based upon what the word of God is, but right and wrong is based upon what the world thinks is okay what maybe Hollywood says is okay, or what friends at work maybe say is okay. But right and wrong isn't based upon that. It's easy to say, I I know Jesus, I believe in Jesus, but the Jesus you believe in may just be a historical Jesus, a historical fact that he came and died on a cross, and you may believe that he, he died for your sins. But if he's not your Lord then you're not going to listen to what he has to say. And you're going to feel like you can pick and choose at what he has to say. And that's an indication of heart problem. That's an indication that you love yourself more than you love Jesus. Because Jesus said in John 14, 23, we read this either last week or the week before. He said, if a man loves me, he'll keep my commandments. If we love him we're going to be confronted with a choice of right or wrong. And that choice is either going to be, well, am I going to build on the sand or am I going to build on the rock? And he said, there's going to be a lot of people that will build on the sand. And yet they'll say to me, and he mentions this again at the end of that sermon, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in thy name? Didn't we do a lot of good deeds and works in thy name, and on and on. And he said, depart from me. I never knew you. There was no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, I mentioned up here 52 years meeting my wife, and and then from that's evolved into almost 51 years of marriage. I grew up in church. I was infant baptized as as a youngster, and then later on, I went to catechism, attended Sunday school on a regular basis, sat up in the balcony of this pretty big church and listened to the sermons every week, got involved in all the things that the church had to offer, Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and on and on, all kinds of different activities and all the different parties that went on. I was always involved in them. Used to have Halloween parties, and I can remember one time for a Halloween costume, I had a, a pair of white pants and a white T-shirt. They were like painter pants. And I took black electrical tape, and I put rings around that on, on those white pants. And I went out in the garage, and I found a bicycle chain. And I nailed a croquet ball on the end of the bicycle chain, wrapped that around my leg, and then went 
to the church and competed in the the best Halloween costume. And they, I won because I looked like a jailbird, you know. Somebody just came out of jail. I remember when the judges were looking, I took my foot and kind of give it a slung and that old croquet ball hooked to a bicycle chain, flipped out in front of him and he laughed. I mean, I was probably, what, eight, nine, ten years old. But the point is, I got very, very involved in the church. But I didn't obey the word. I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When it wasn't Sunday, I was into all kinds of various sins. But one day, God opened my heart to let me see that I was playing some kind of a game. And he revealed himself to me in a different way, and I surrendered my life to him. See, this sermon that we are entering into, we're not getting into the depth of it just yet, we should have an attitude that when, we, when these things come across, he's trying to teach us something. And we're free. We're free to search these things out, pray about them, think about them, look as to how that we're going to put it into practice. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But to just have a mental attitude of, I believe in Jesus, and yet not be obedient to the word, it's very easy to deceive yourself into thinking that somehow you've got the gift of life, eternal life, just because you say, I believe in Jesus. I told you to turn to the book of James. The book of James is the first book that was ever written in the New Testament. The writings of the New Testament are not in an order of what they were written, but James is the first book written. And James talks about how that we should be swift to hear and slow to speak and to be a doer of the word and to have meekness. Now, we'll get to that in a moment. But in verse 21 of James 1, he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, you know, big words there. But he's talking about lay aside the, the sins and the filth that you might be living in and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. And then he goes on and he says, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. If any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. He beholds himself and he goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was, unless he was really vain. You know what I mean? I've been out on social media and sometimes people on their sites, they're filled with selfies. I mean, the whole thing is nothing but pictures of themselves. They're really caught up in themselves. That's not normal behavior. But anyways, he goes on to say that a man that is not a doer of the word, you know, he looks at it, looks in the mirror, walks away, goes about doing his own life. He says, if any man among you seem to be religious and they can't bridle their tongue, they're deceiving his own self. This man's religion, he says, is in vain. Pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father, is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. You know, elderly people, moms and dads and elderly people. And in other words, it's, it's loving others before yourself and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Boy, the more that, the, the more that you look at Hollywood, they are just one 
big electronic dumpster of filth. And I, like uh, Bev and I, we, we rarely watch TV. And it isn't because we, somebody gave us a rule that said, don't watch TV. It's just that there's nothing on it of any value. I mean, occasionally you can find something historical that's, that's interesting, but the, the, the TV shows today are just nothing but filth. And all that is doing it in one's mind is corrupting it and making oneself spotted in the world. But he goes on here in this in James, and he goes into the next chapter, and he talks about how that faith isn't something that you say. Faith is something that's demonstrated by actions. He says, for example, in the um, 14th verse, he says, What is it profit? I'm in James 2, 14. What is it, my prophet, my brother, if a man says he has faith and he doesn't have any works? Can that kind of faith save him? Now, the works that he's talking about there are the corresponding actions. The, the Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith and it results in the workmanship of God in our life where he comes in as Lord and he begins to start working in our life to clean us up and mature us and grow us and conform us into the image of Christ. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's that high standard, that goal that God wants us to strive for. Not to make excuses like, well, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Well, they, that may be tr a true statement, but we are to strive for maturity. Perfection in the Bible is maturity. And so James is talking about when the new birth occurs in a person's life, there's a change that occurs. I don't know how it happens. It just does. Once Nicodemus asked Jesus when he was talking about being born again, he said, how can a man be born again? How can he get back into his mother's womb? And you can't get back into your mother's womb. But it's, a, it's like a new birth. It's like a change that occurs when you, when you open yourself up to the Lord. He comes in and the desires to want to live carnal and sinful in the old way, they go away. It's usually followed by baptism. And that's a public statement. That's what it is. That's, Bev happens to be at a baptism this morning where a couple of the grandkids that don't come here are getting baptized. And I think that that's probably already occurred. But it's a public statement and it's saying, I want you to know that as I go down into this watery grave, when I come out, I come out with a new, with a new life that I want everybody to know. I'm taking this old life and burying it in that watery grave and I'm coming out and I'm, I'm walking in a new way of life. And so if that new way of life doesn't occur, that was nothing more than a church bath. That's all that was. You go to a church and you get baptized, but if, if your heart was sincerely not asking for Jesus to take over, then that's all that it was. You took a bath. It might have been at a church. It might have been in a lake. It might have been in a river, whatever. And for some people, maybe they just got a little washing on top of the head, a little sprinkling of the water. But baptism is identifying into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's coming out of that water and publicly saying to people, look, I've surrendered my life to Christ, 
And I now am going to walk in a new way of life. And it'll cost you. I remember it, it cost me a lot of friends. I can still, still remember I had one group. And as a young Christian, I can remember they came out to the house one time. And Mom, Bev and I maybe had only been married a year, not much more than that. And they walked up to the door and they had their six pack of beer and they had all, all their other garbage stuff. And I said, well, guys, I surrendered my life to Christ. If you want to come in tonight, that's fine. We're going to watch the Ten Commandments <laughs> on TV or something like that. I forget. But all that other stuff, it stays outside. I didn't have an interest in it. I did. It never brought me joy. It never brought me happiness. All it ever brought me was sickness and sorrow and trouble in my life. And I don't want to glorify the devil about telling you about all the sorrow that I uh, went through. But sometimes it resulted looking through some bars. We'll just, and I'm not the type you drink at, the other kind. That's all I'll tell you. Praise God, that, that's under the blood. But at the same time, what, I was, what was happening was that, that God opened my heart. And he turned me around. And the life that I've been blessed with is exceeding abundantly above all one could ask or think. He goes on to say then, he says that, what is a prophet to say a man has faith? I said it then. I'm a Christian. I'm a Methodist. I then became a Lutheran. All I was saying is I was a church member. But when I became a real Christian, saving faith, there was a change that occurred. And that change resulted in finding out what God said in his word and making the choice to live it and not live what I wanted to live. And that as I matured and growed, he just kept raising the bar. You know, like Becky, who's not here today, she was a pole vaulter. Well, what good would it be to set a bar at like about three feet for her? I mean, she's kind of short. And it, uh, a three-foot bar would be a real challenge for me, I'll tell you that. But her coaches, you know, it probably went to five foot, then went to six foot and seven foot. I don't know what it was, but you get the point. They didn't say after she just reached a, a point, very good, Becky, you've arrived, that's it. Well, becoming a Christian, you're at that three foot, four foot, five foot bar. But there's another high standard that he wants us to attain to, and that high standard is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And to just think that because one says they're a Christian but isn't striving to get over that high hurdle is just deception in yourself. Like James said earlier, he said, well, that's just um, faith. That's like looking at a mirror and walking away. You're deceiving yourself if you're not being a doer of the word. So he goes on and continues in that same thing. He says, what is it profit if a man says he has faith but he has no corresponding actions to demonstrate it. He says, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yes, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. And then he says, show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. Our works are living holy and godly and choosing to obey the Lord. Those are the things that confirm that we have a genuine saving faith. 
He said, you believe that there's one God? You're doing, you're doing well, but the demons also believe, and they tremble. So you can have nothing more than a, a demon faith, a devil faith, by just saying, I believe in Jesus. He was a historical figure. And that isn't what saving faith is all about. Something happens when you open up your heart to Jesus. Something happens. He comes in and he, well, Jesus says it's like the wind and the trees. All you can see is the effect of it. You can't explain where it came from and all that. And he said that's what occurs is there's a change that takes place. Well, that change then that takes place comes as we hear the word of God and we put forth an effort to obey it and keep it by starting out with like the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then maturing and growing. And the high bar, the high standard is what's over in Matthew 5. Now turn over there and I'll, I'll do a real quick summary of the first two Beatitudes that we talked about. But this isn't something that we live to attain salvation. Nobody could live it. Nobody could obtain salvation that way. They got to have a new heart. And that is something that God does when you surrender yourself sincerely to him. Now, when you surrender yourself to him, that's not joining a church. That is being poor in spirit and mourning and opening yourself up in sincerity and saying, Lord, I've, been, I've, I've made a total mess of my life. And I'm now receiving your opportunity for a new life and asking for it and repenting and turning. So in Matthew 5, this high standard starts out with several things that we haven't yet finished where he talks about blessed are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst, and on and on, this blessedness. And uh, the word also can be translated as, as happy. You want a happy life? Then listen to what he says and put it into practice and live it. Just like, well, Nate's father-in-law, who isn't with us anymore, but he used to have a saying he'd say to Nate, Nate, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> In other words, he'd say, you want, a happy, you want a happy life, Nate? Then keep your wife happy. Happy wife, happy life. Remember? And we, don't, we, we are married to Christ, but we could say happy father, happy life. If we please the Lord, then God promises us an abundance of promises that if we're seeking to please him, he says, I'll, I'm taking control of your life and you're going to have a happy life. I've got a happy life. I know it. But it all started back 50 some years, or not quite 50 years ago. But anyways, so he starts out, let me just briefly mention a couple of these and get to that third one before I let you get out of here. The first one he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the king, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you look over to Luke 18, I, I think you better turn with that, because basically what he's saying to us here is, we are blessed if we recognize our spiritual poverty and need of salvation and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And this kind of goes back to the testimony that I shared. I can remember when, before I became a Christian, my wife became a Christian first, 
She was raised in a Lutheran environment, went through all the things that I did, except that Halloween party. But she went through all the different things that the church was bringing forth. But she didn't have the happiness. She didn't have the peace. She knew that there were sin in her life that that God wasn't pleased with, and sometimes that would show up, up in the curse coming forward. So she went, and I went with her and a couple other friends. We went to a Billy Graham movie and sat in this theater, and it was a very convicting movie because it was of a, of a family relationship and how that the family was in just disarray and discord because they were trying to put together a family and have a blessed family by, by doing it on their own, by what they were taught by psychologists and psychiatrists, by what they were taught or saw their neighbors living, or what their co-workers had told them at work, and on and on. They didn't have Jesus in their marriage. And they got Jesus in their marriage and totally turned their marriage around whereby it, it became blessed. And so the message plainly was, you need Jesus in your life. And so I can remember her sitting there and the other couple. The other couple been married as long as us, about 50 years, 51 years, and they've got as many children as we do, and they're all serving the Lord, the other couple. You remember them, the Conleys. And so there was Carol, and there was Chet, and there was Bev, and there was Mike. They were all sitting there listening with an open heart, and I was sitting there listening like this. <laughs> you know, I'm a Lutheran, man. I don't need Jesus. I got Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, even in spite of when I said to my wife, uh, I love God, at one point I didn't become a Christian then. But anyways, there were seeds that were being sown. I just was too arrogant and stuffed shirt to want to bring it out. And God broke that down to whereby I was willing, like the Apostle Paul, to look at that big list of things I had and look at it and say, you know what, that's all my work. That's all my idea. That's all man's tradition. That doesn't get a tone for my sins. I did what Paul said. I looked at it with an attitude of that's nothing more than dog piles. That's dung. That's what he called it. This, this story in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, to me when you're talking about what does it mean to be poor in spirit, it means that you spiritually realize that you're bankrupt. There's nothing you can do that's going to get your way into heaven or please God. What are you going to offer God? What are you going to give him? He has all the riches in the world. You're going to offer him your intelligence? He's all wise and all knowing. You're going to offer him some cool ideas on how to run the church? He doesn't want your ideas. He doesn't need us. Is that humbling for you? He doesn't need us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. It's, it's for us to be invited into his kingdom. Ought to put us on our face and say, Oh, dear God, thank you for your mercy. He opens the heart and gives repentance and faith so he tells this parable here in verse uh, 9 of Luke 18 he says he spoke this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others 
that man, after that movie, there was an invitation to come forward and receive Christ. And Bev, Carol, Chet, they went up. And then one of them, I think, turned to me and said, are you coming up? I said, I guess. So I went up, and this man pulled out a little track. He says, pray this prayer with me. I said, I can pray my own prayers. I didn't pray any prayer. I mean, <laughs> what do I need to pray a prayer for? Man, uh, here I am, Lord. Great Methodist. Remember me singing in the choir? Remember me collecting, helping to collect the offering plate? Remember me passing out the communion elements? Remember me ringing the bell? I had all kinds of things that I could boast about. But all that was, is abs that's my effort. That was my work. So he talks about that. I was kind of like this Pharisee. These two men went up into the temple to pray. One the Pharisee, the other a publican. Pharisee was a highly religious man. The publican was probably a crooked tax collector. He was a, a corrupt politician, IRS type. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself because God wasn't listening. And he said, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are. Extortioners, unjust men, extort um, adulterers, or like this publican. And then he bragged about his work. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I possess. And the Pharisee standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. But smote on his breast saying, God be merciful to me. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalts himself will be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And that's what happened to me, and of course millions of others, is that when they received Christ, they took that exaltation that they had, and it was taken away, and they were humbled. And they changed. They, reckoned, they had to recognize they were poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that you recognize that apart from his saving grace, you don't have eternal life. You don't get answers to your prayers. You're not in fellowship with God. Only by repentance and receiving the gospel will you ever come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's going to present that high bar, but that high bar is only to those that start out with an attitude whereby they see they need instruction on how to live. So that results, secondly, where he says, blessed are they that mourn. Now I talked about this last week briefly. There's a natural mourning that everybody kind of goes through if they lose something, maybe a loved one, or maybe even something in the material realm, or maybe a job or something. There's a natural mourning. For the Christian we're told that we're to count it all joy when these things happen because God expects us to release faith, commit the problems unto him, and believe that he will resolve those for us and bless us with them, and we don't dwell in them and move into the realm of self-pity and sorrow and grieving to whereby we just are having a big pity party. God expects us to give him the problem, trust him, and he'll work it out. But that's not the kind of mourning that he's talking about here. I'll go back to Matthew 5. That's not the kind of mourning that he's talking about. The kind of mourning that he's talking about, and I got briefly into this, is a godly sorrow. 
I gave you out of the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul speaks about this godly sorrow in chapter 7 without turning over there to whereby he rebuked the church at Corinth in his first letter. And in that rebuking of them, he went down through a big list of sins that were going on in their church. He said, oh, you move frequently on the gifts of the Spirit, chapter 12, 13, 14. He said, you are very well known for the gifts, but you're not known for being a moral, ethical, mature, godly church. He called them carnal. And he went on through and he started listing out all kinds of things pointing to their carnality. And some of them go back to what he said in Matthew chapter 5. And what happened was they repented when they got it rebuked. They had a situation in their church where there was a man and a woman that were living together and they were not married. And God said, put them out. We're not going to have that kind of ungodliness in the church. We've had that happen here in this church, but I don't broadcast it. There's things that have gone on between the pastor and between couples that nobody may know, including my wife, where I maybe put certain people under church discipline because I said, if you're going to choose to live that way, you're not welcome here. That's not Christian living. And they either repent or they did not come back. And in some cases, they repented. And when they did repent, we opened arms and let them back in again. And that's what happened at Corinth, is that they permitted the repentant people to come back, although it was kind of hard for some, but they came back. But Paul makes that statement in 2 Corinthians 7 without me turning there. He said, if I made you sorry, it was of a godly sort, a godly sorrow which resulted in repentance and change. And when this is what happens when, when a man or a woman comes to the point in their life to whereby they see that they're not pleasing unto God and that they're not in fellowship with him, the Holy Spirit puts a mourning in their heart where they don't feel comfortable, they don't feel happy, they feel grieved. And it results in repentance and confession of sin and results in change. And that is the godly sorrow in the morning that he's talking about there in, the, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And then there's another kind. Look over to Jeremiah 13. There's another kind of mourning I'll mention, but I want to move on. There's another kind of mourning, and that is one that in the book of Romans chapter 8, it talks about how that there's a groaning from within, that the Holy Spirit puts a burden on, my, on our heart. Zach mentioned this morning about Christians that are grieved and upset at the politics that have gone on with um, the former president not being reelected and all the things that go with it. You know, listen, we've got you've got to get a right mindset. The United States of America is not the kingdom of God. It's a great nation. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But all nations of the world are sinful to some degree. And yes, I'm grieved by the fact that in this country, we keep going more and more in a direction contrary to what God says in his word. 
millions of babies. I think the number is like 63 million abortions have occurred since Roe v. Wade. And that's far, far more than the Holocaust and Adolf Hitler. And the immorality, like I said, Hollywood is a flood of filth that comes across. And yet we find people quoting Hollywood people all the time. I don't want to hear Hollywood. I want to hear what did Jesus say about that situation. You know what I mean? So yes, I'm really grieved at what's going on in this country. But it's to be something that I'm mourning over that should result in prayer for God to open the eyes of people and bring about revival and turn it around. I was raised in the 60s. And there was a lot of corruption going on. The assassination of John F. Kennedy, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King, those were all politically motivated, corrupt things that were going on. And this country was headed downhill rapidly. And you know what came out of it? The charismatic movement, which is what I'm a product of, as well as a few others. There was a great revival that came forth. But somebody was mourning. Somebody was praying for this country. Jeremiah was weeping over, if you look at Jeremiah 13, he was weeping over Israel. The United States is not Israel. Israel was a, was a nation, the only nation on the world, in which God was the king over that nation. His throne was the Ark of the Covenant, then later on was, was in the temple. But there, the White House is not the throne of God in the United States. The Bible says we're pilgrims and strangers passing through. Pray for the country, but don't pray that God gives us a new king like Trump or whoever it might be. That's nothing. That is not biblical. And so many today are not seeing that. I don't know why other than they're just shallow in the word. But Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Jesus and many others, they would intercede and cry out and mourn over their country because they saw the corruption coming in. Just one illustration. In Jeremiah 13 and verse 17, Jeremiah, and I know some of you recently studied Jeremiah because you told me you did. He was rebuking and, and weeping and crying for the nation of Israel. They were about to go into captivity. He says, for example, here, verse 16, Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains and you look for light, that he would turn the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. If you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eyes shall weep and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. And you can read the same thing, Ezekiel, without turning there. And Ezekiel 9, 4. God said, I want you to go forth and I want you to put a mark upon the people that are weeping and mourning and crying out to me. And I want you to mark them. And when judgment came forth, that mark prevented them from being judged. God protected them, watched over for them. He wants us to pray and intercede for our country. But at the same time, uh, 
we have to keep a proper scriptural balance that's there. So the mourning can be over the country, the institutional church that doesn't want to follow the word of God. I think it was Nathaniel recently told me that that a friend of his, for example, that was, was that, I think it was Lutheran, that they left that church simply because they were becoming more and more um, liberal in their beliefs. They've got homosexuals in the pulpit. Homosexuals are allowed in church. Homosexuality is one of the basest sins in the word of God, and clearly God says that will bring nothing but wrath and judgment upon the, upon the people. And, of course, we've got Hollywood, all kinds of gays today, promoting that you're some kind of bigot if you believe that. I don't care what you call me. I'm a Christian, and I'm gonna, my standard is God's word, not some television program or what the rest of the world thinks. He delivered me from that world. So there's a mourning that is there that God can bring upon us. And it can be for our family. It can be for our friends. It can be for people that we work with. It can be for the country. But he says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He says, we're blessed when we take some of these problems upon ourselves and pray and intercede that God's mercy and long-suffering would continue rather than his wrath come forth to give people an opportunity and time to repent and to change. Otherwise, just like that, in an in a instant car accident or an instant heart attack or in some kind of a quick moment, a person could die, and the moment they die, that's it. Their soul is hell-bound if they haven't received Jesus as a Savior. I don't care how much the morticians may paint it up and decorate it and how that you can open that casket of that corpse and look at it and say, my, isn't he, she beautiful? That's nothing more than the remains of a person. That person has either gone to be with the Lord or that person is in hell suffering with the majority of people because they rejected their Savior and they rejected their Lord and his way of life for their way of life. So yes, we should mourn for the world that we're in. And Jesus cried out and said to Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have been like a hen that gathered the chicks under her wings. But you kept saying no. And so he cried out in Matthew 23. You can read it where he cried out unto them and he wept over them. So there's a mourning that is there that also goes in regard to what we were trying to say last week. Now let me move on to one more. And I won't spend a lot of time on this one. But he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The blessing, you know where he says, blessed are the, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, he says, are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, inheriting the earth, I believe, is a phrase, a saying that the earth has a lot here that we 
we enjoy and we're blessed with. It, what a blessing it is to have a good home over our head. What a blessing it is to have plenty of food to eat. What a blessing it is to be prospering in our, in our jobs to whereby we can pay our bills. Those are the things that God promises. He says in, in the book of Gospel of the Third John, the, the epistle, he says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you'd prosper and be in health. So there are things of this earth. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, he's not talking about a new earth. And in the millennium, there aren't going to be any needs. So he's talking about now. And there are other Psalms, like Psalm 37, would concern the same thing. So blessed are the meek. So what does it mean to be meek? Well, look over to Matthew chapter 11. It means basically... Meekness could be referred to in a couple different ways. And I'll try to get you onto the right screen here. There's a couple ways that can be thought of in regard to being meek. Meekness is, first of all, it's the opposite of self-will toward God. And secondly, it's the opposite of ill will toward men. Now, when you get into the opposite of ill will toward men, I'm going to hold off on getting into some of that because that's where the Sermon on the Mount gets pretty deep. I mean, sometimes Jesus said, if you're slapped on one cheek, turn to them the other also. There's a place where he says, for example, that if they take your coat, give them your cloak. And that's hard stuff to live. I mean... The idea is, you see, that the tendency is to want to raise up and defend your rights. Well, it doesn't say when you take all the Bible and put it together, we have certain rights that it's all right to go after your right if you do it in a right way. If you do it with anger, if you do it with, with hatred, if you do it through the court system, which maybe you're allowed to do by the country, that doesn't mean God allows you. If you're rendering evil for evil, then you cross a line that God doesn't want you to cross. And it's a hard line. But it doesn't mean that you have to just let people run over you either. Dolan was talking about getting some trouble from an insurance company to pay for some uh, things that he's gone through with this uh, Shoulder surgery. Well, there's nothing wrong with going after an insurance company that doesn't want to pay a bill and yet keeping it in the confines of Scripture. You don't have to take them to court and sue them. But that doesn't stop you from writing a letter or appealing it. But it's how you word the letter or how you appeal it is where meekness comes in. Is controlling your spirit. And there's a lot to be said on that, which I think I'll wait for rather than uh, get into it. But let's go back to the other. It is the opposite of self-will toward God. I told you to turn to Matthew 11 and verse 29. Here's what Christianity is all about. It's taking the yoke of Jesus and learning Him of him. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
you're burdened and heavy down by the problems that sin has wrought in your life. There's a law called the law of sowing and reaping. And if you sow to the flesh, the old way of life, the old habits of the life, the ways of the world, you'll reap corruption like the world. Hollywood may have lots of money, but they've got one of the worst divorce rates in the country. And if everything is so peachy and great in Hollywood, why do we have so many suicides? Why are so many trying to, being hooked on drugs, trying to get happiness out of some kind of a chemical? They don't know what true happiness is. Some of them do, but they don't know what true happiness is. And yet he tells us that blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the things of the earth. But he says they're going to be happy. I know what he's talking about. But he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. And I'm lowly in heart, and you'll find rest under your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Yeah, compared to the burdens and sins of the world. But at the same time, it's costly. Discipleship is costly. But he says, take my yoke upon you. You know, if you think about the yoke with cattle, if you've ever gone to a historical museum, it's a lock. They take one oxen and they lock another oxen beside them. And one of them is the lead oxen. And they proceed to start working the fields with that lead oxen using the strength and help of another. But they together they walk. And together they accomplish something. And God speaks of it in the book of Amos. He says, in our relationship with him, he says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? We're, we are locked to Jesus. And he wants to take control in your life. He wants to show you how to live, not you show him what you think ought to be done. And boy, do a lot of people miss it there. There. Because their keen ideas, oh, you may get numbers and, and you may get people to follow. Well, oh, sure, you'll do that. That's like, you know, in, inviting, if we have posted in the courier and said, everyone that comes to this church on February 22nd, which I'm, it might be next Sunday, we're going to give an envelope with five crisp $100 bills. To everyone that comes through that door. I'll bet you we, if they got that out to the general public, I'll bet there'd be a line out front. <laughs> you, well, I'm serious. Sure, if all you're going to do is give them a sugar stick, that's all that's there. But if I put out a message about the real meaning of the cross and how that we're to pick it up daily and what it means to die on that cross, we won't get a taker. They don't want that. So anyways, he says here, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am a meek and lowly in heart. Let me wrap something up here real quick. If you turn over to, to Acts chapter 17, because I've gone my hour. Let me wrap it up a little bit by showing you something out of the book of Acts. You know, I sometimes when we get people that come to church, I don't know everybody's background. There are a lot of things I used to believe as a Methodist and a Lutheran that I found out was phony baloney, so I gave it up. But sometimes, you know, people get raised with it and, and they think, for example, that things are a certain way. 
you get into various areas I don't care to want to get into with holidays and pictures and traditional things. You know, you know what I'm talking about. And it might be hard for some of them to hear. There could be some here that if I got into some of those areas of worshiping God in spirit and truth, might be a little, a bit of a, a bitter pill to swallow. And we're not trying to drive people away. We're just asking you to hunger and thirst for what's right, which is the next beatitude. See, there's a pattern that goes down there. Just be open and teachable. And don't do anything unless you really are fully persuaded about it from the Lord. Meekness is not being weak. Being weak is just following the crowd and doing whatever is acceptable. Being meek is being taught of Jesus to whereby there's a conviction in your heart and you know personally what is right and you're not going to budge on it. You're not going to bend. You're not going to compromise. You're going to take, take a stand for what is right. And if somebody comes along and they don't like it, they disagree with you, they think you're crazy, we've been told that the servant of the Lord must not strive. Meekness means controlling your spirit. Don't get into an argument. Don't start getting angry and getting upset. But don't compromise either. Don't bend either. And be open and teachable. Let the Holy Spirit, he says, and he said there that he was meek and lowly in heart. If you look at Acts chapter 17, let me give you one illustration I'll close. And I might talk about this a little bit more next week. But here you have in Acts chapter 17 that Paul was out on a missionary journey and he went to this city called Thessalonica. And as I said a few weeks ago, that what he would do is go into a city and then he'd go to the synagogue and they had a, a place to whereby you could stand up and you could speak. He did that by tradition. So he went to there. When they passed through Amphibius and Apollonalia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul's manner was, went into them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So for three Saturdays, he stood up and he tried to reason with them about what the Word of God said. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs to have suffered and risen from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is the, the Christ, the Messiah. So he's trying to reach these Jews with the gospel. Some of them believed, and they joined with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, another great multitude of the chief women. So there were quite a few people that received what he taught. But when the people that they were involved with as a synagogue or some other Greek religion, when they saw that he was pulling away people from their groups to the gospel, they did whatever they could to try to stop his message. The Jews, which believed not, moved with envy and took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Must have been Greek hillbillies or Jewish. <laughs> Anyways. They gathered a company and they set all the city on an uproar and they assaulted the house of Jason and they sought to bring them out to the people. Who's Jason? Well, there's only one other place he's mentioned and 
he calls Jason over in the book of Romans, chapter 1621. I won't turn to it. He says, though, that Jason was a kinsman. I don't know if it was literally a blood relative or, or a brother in Christ. But here's Jason. He's got a house. And he's got people there that they've been hearing the word. And so they're coming after Jason. They're wanting to destroy the, the house and the people. And when they found them not, well, let me back up a little bit. They assaulted the house of Jason, and they sought to bring them out to the people. They're looking for Paul and Silas. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These men have turned the world upside down and come thither, whom Jason hath received, and all these do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken the security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. So something happened to Jason. Looks like he got put in some kind of a prison or jail for following the gospel and being a Christian. But he's talking about this group of people, this Thessalonians, that are in uproar because they don't want the gospel ministered unto them. But then if you read verse 10 and following, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. They did the same thing. But these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. In other words, the, the Jews there in Berea, when they heard the things about Christ and the teachings and so forth that he brought forth, they just didn't immediately write it off and say, I don't believe that garbage. I'm not going to follow them. I don't want to be associated with that group. And just having an attitude whereby they weren't teachable, they could have been like the, the publican that said, who's this guy? He's a traitor. He was one that was with us and he turned away from us. And I've got all these good works that I could appeal to. I mean, that's the way the publican was. But the Thessalonians, or the, the Bereans here, were like those, he says, of like the publican that smote on his breast. They were open. They were teachable. Here's my suggestion. Meekness is this. It's being open and teachable to the word. It's not calling up family, calling up your relatives, calling up your friends and saying, you know what this guy taught? What do you think of that? Not that that's necessarily wrong, but the standard is the scriptures. The standard is the word. He says these were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. That's all I'm at. I don't make people believe anything I'm saying. But if you're really hungering and thirsting for the truth, then search the scriptures. Get into your Bible. Read your Bible. Take, you know, I've got these things up on the board for you to write down. I see pictures get popped. We got a website out now with a lot of teachings out there. We keep adding more. If a person's really hungry and they want to learn, then search the scriptures. See if these things be so. Don't have an attitude of arrogance. Don't have an attitude whereby you think you've arrived. 
don't have an attitude to whereby you feel like you like everything's going to be filtered through your spiritual knowledge as to determine whether it's right or wrong without going back to the scripture. I use the scripture. And I challenge you to search these things out. I remember one time being in a church where the subject of water baptism came up. And we were sitting within a few chairs of, of some people that were diehard Lutherans. And when the minister, who happened to be Steve Hill at that point, got to talking about water baptism, baptism in Jesus' name, he responded as he turned to his wife and he says, you know, that's an insult to my Lutheran baptism. He was baptized as an infant. That's an insult to my Lutheran baptism. No, it's an insult to your man-made tradition is what it is. But you're not going to know that if you don't search the scriptures and try to learn what the Bible says and not what's been passed down through the eons of time to make things more following the traditions of men rather than the faith of God. God just is saying to us, Blessed are the meek. He wants us to be teachable, pliable, correctable. He doesn't want us to be arrogant and unteachable and stubborn and proud. He wants us to open up our hearts to see if these things be so. And in order for that to happen, we have to have the next beatitude, which he goes on to say, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be filled. All these things have a place of kind of working together when they end. So meekness at this point, like I said, it's the opposite of self-will toward God, and it's also the opposite of ill-will toward men. I'll talk about the opposite of ill-will toward men as we move on through the sermon, but to be meek means to be correctable, teachable. If something is taught or said, check it out with the Word of God. See if these things are so. Be, be persuaded in your own mind. Father, thank you for the opportunity to minister your word. And we ask that every heart would be open and receptive to it. And keep leading us and guiding us in this sermon that we can understand what it means to be poor in spirit, to be mournful, and to be meek, and to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and on and on. Help us get these things into our hearts so that we can mature and grow and not be negative and critical of that high bar and standard that you said we should use to build our lives upon. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.